Okay, uh, welcome to Australian China Institute for Arts and Culture. Uh, my name is Tony Xiaoren. I'm a research fellow here, and I'm going to chair today's seminar. Um, so I'll start like start by acknowledging the traditional custodian of the land where we stand here today, and the Darwin people of the Darwin Nation, and pay our respects to the elders, past and present. So today we are very pleased to have Michael, uh, Professor Michael Williams, with us. Um, he uh, is recently um, appointed as adjunct professor of the institute. So uh, now, um, so it's great that uh, we have him in the team uh, and his expertise in the Chinese Australian studies. Uh, this is uh, one of the key areas of research in this institute. And we have, through uh, Michael, organized a series of seminars on this topic. Last year, we had a wonderful seminar by Michael. Uh, the opening seminar of this series, uh, which is an overview of the field of Australian Chinese studies. And this year we are going to have six seminars uh, in a chronicle order and covering different periods of uh, time in the Chinese Australian history. And today it is the first seminar uh, of this series of lectures. And Michael is going to talk about the very early years of the Chinese-Australian interactions. And uh, he will talk about um, the issues like trade, discovery, labor, and many other interesting things. Um, and we will have the rest of the seminar uh, roughly at a monthly base. So if you are interested, please pay attention to our website and our advertisement, so uh, we'll fit it into the dates. Um, so um, one last thing before I hand over to Michael. You find uh, some uh, little gift from the institute uh, for your seat. So this is an the exhibition there uh, in the gallery. And uh, the artist will have a workshop in the following week. So if you like her work, you can um, come to uh, listen to more from her works. Um, so now, without further ado, um, that, that's, um, please join me in welcoming Okay, uh, thank you. Thank you, Tony. Uh, and welcome, everybody. And. Uh, Hope uh, uh, you'll enjoy the series. Um, it won't be dull as uh, Alice in Wonderland, uh, Alice once thought history was. So, as Tony mentioned, uh, this is the beginning of a series, and I just want to mention, apart from telling you what the basic rundown of the series is, is to uh, it's got of course a lot of dates there, but just to uh, remember the dates are very arbitrary uh, and shouldn't be taken very seriously. But I just want to point out one aspect of these dates is that some of them you recognise from Australian history, 1788 of course, uh, arrival of the first fleet, uh, 1851, um, beginning of the gold rushes. Uh, but then I've also got dates such as 1911, which is more important in Chinese history than it is in Australian history. And so just to show how events in China are reflecting back on uh, Australian history as well, uh, 1972, a date that combines uh, Australia-China relations, for example. So, so it's a matter of interchange. So Australian, Australian history is all about uh, the links uh, with China as much as anything else. <coughs> so the other thing I want to tell you is why <coughs> a reflective history. So what I mean by that is that the present and the past are always interacting and reflecting back. So in this series, I won't, even though I'm going back to before 1788 or back to early 19th century, I'll also be talking about events uh, in the present and how they influence um, our perceptions of the past. And that's because I believe in this other 
quote, which again, I might get people to guess where they think that one's from. The truth may be out there, but the lies are inside your head. Uh, and by that, of course, I mean that stereotypes and assumptions are, are very important in how we perceive history or how we try to argue about history. Misinterpretations are common and sometimes uh, outright lies. And history is very often used and abused uh, to meet the needs of the present. <coughs> and certainly this is happening today, uh, but as of course has always, always happened. And one um, perspective that I want you to remember that will that appear quite a few times throughout this lecture series is that China's weakness has influenced perceptions of the past, just as China's strength now is influencing perceptions today. So this idea, again, doesn't really matter whether China is weak or strong or what it does with its strength, it's the perception uh, that's most important. I've entitled this uh, first lecture, Before There Was Gold. <clears throat> the reason I do that is one of the most persistent stereotypes of the Chinese in Australia is that they were all gold miners. And that's the beginning and the end of the, of the history as far as many people are concerned. And of course, like all good stereotypes, there's an element of truth in that. Because uh, many were gold miners and gold mining and the gold rushes are a very important aspect of the overall history, just as gold rushes were important overall in Australia's history. But there's a lot more to the story. And so the focus in this first lecture will be entirely on the period before the gold rushes. The focus here is the period before gold was discovered in Australia and even before uh, Europeans uh, began to settle uh, in Australia. <coughs> so the first per period I'll talk about the pre-1788 up till around about 1818 and I'll be talking about three themes, uh, discovery, trade and labour. Uh, and uh, I'll be asking a few questions. So one of those questions is who discovered Australia? But more significantly, why is this important? What's what? Who is it important to? Also, I'll ask the question, who was the first Chinese person in Australia? And why is that an important question? And finally, another question that's always important, uh, is important today as it was in the past, is it better to have cheap goods or higher wages? And this is a theme that runs right through Australian history and particularly involves Chinese people in Australia. Sorry, we mentioned Zhang He and sea cucumbers. We're mentioning seal furs and tea, the line of Parramatta, uh, a modern artist, Zhou Xiaoping and his art, and again, the long arm of the present, uh, with an example from a uh, former president of, of China, uh, Hu Jintao. <coughs> so, before there was gold, can this be very much? So as I said, we'll be talking about discovery, trade, and labor. These last two elements of this history have continued to have an impact to the present day, but the first discovery is perhaps even more significant insofar as it impacts upon identity, and the ability to, as it were, lay a claim to Australia and a role uh, in Australian history. So, <clears throat> who discovered Australia and why does it matter? Well, this question is, of course, all about staking a claim. So you can see from this map, this is a map uh, that existed before uh, Captain Cook uh, began his own voyages of exploration. And you can see from that, quite a large uh, uh, parts of Australia were well known uh, to the Europeans before uh, Captain Cook ever arrived on the scene. <coughs> but also, uh, we're going to look at that, the influence of Tripang and Chinese cuisine, Zhang He versus James Cook, and Xiaolao and Zhou Xiaoping. <coughs> so going back, uh, in 2003, the then President of China visited Australia, uh, <coughs> and he made a speech before Parliament. And in that speech, 
probably much to John Howard's uh, shock and horror, he, he declared that China had long since uh, known about uh, Australia, long before the Europeans, had, the Chinese had settled in Australia and had traded with Aboriginal people. Now, this shocked quite a few historians as well, uh, and by and large we thought uh, the president was staking a claim uh, in Australia. Now we don't know who was informing uh, the president of China about this kinds of history, but by and large there's no evidence uh, for that. Uh, but these kinds of claims, these kinds of, uh, the Chinese must have discovered Australia at some point, come up again and again. Another example is this figurine, uh, the Shola, which was discovered in Darwin uh, in the 19th century, late 19th century, or near Darwin in the late 19th century. And some people have speculated that this must be a Ming Dynasty figurine, and if it was, it must have been dropped there by uh, uh, Zheng He, or if not by Zheng He, one of his captains uh, who sailed by and naturally discovered Australia, but then, then failed to mention it in any of their records. <clears throat> so again, this has been by and large identified as simply a soapstone figurine from the 19th century and was probably dropped there simply by one of the many Chinese uh, people that were living in Darwin, in and around Darwin at the time. <clears throat> now that doesn't mean there was no connection. In fact, there was definitely uh, a Chinese connection with Australia that predates uh, European settlement and invasion. So this, we have this record from a Dutch uh, trader who was living in Timor at the time. Uh, he reported back to his Dutch East India Company, the Ch a Chinese trader returning from a trip to the south of five days sailing before the wind and two days and nights having drifted, reported to have visited a land of people who were very black and the hair very woolly. <coughs> so obviously Timor is very close to Australia and the Dutch trader simply announced, oh, he must have been visiting the Southland, which the Dutch trader also knew all about. Uh, so it's very probable that this is uh, certainly evidence of the first actual Chinese person to have gone all the way down to Australia. Now the reason uh, he was doing that is not a tree palm, not a um, sea cucumber, he was actually looking for tortoiseshell, this particular trader. So presumably these Chinese traders were wandering around looking for all kinds of things. But we do know about this connection back to China. It's well documented. Uh, existed from at least the 18th century. Uh, not necessarily done by Chinese traders directly, but by Magassans and others from central, what's now central Indonesian islands, travelling down to uh, northern Australia, uh, using Aboriginal people to help them to uh, harvest the sea cucumber and then taking them back and trading them back up through Manila to uh, China. So this is a link uh, that, of course, is well known uh, among Aboriginal people in the north. Uh, it's often declared a forgotten history. Every now and again you'll see an ABC article or something which will declare this to be a forgotten history and they've rediscovered it. Uh, it's not so much a forgotten history, it's a history that for various reasons doesn't penetrate into main, mainstream uh, consciousness. Uh, but it does, of course, it's very conscious as far as uh, Aboriginal people are concerned and it's something that's been well known for a long, long time. It went on, in fact, till 1906 before the trade was stopped by administrators in the Northern Territory. Uh, in fact, the Australian government had taxed this, this trade for many years, uh, charging 50 pounds in Singapore gold sovereigns right through the 19th century. Uh, when Matthew Flinders um, <coughs> was circumnavigating Australia, he counted 80 ships coming down in the fleet to, to collect a sea cucumber. This had dropped uh, gradually over the 19th century uh, until finally a ban stopped it completely. And academics have known about this trade uh, right through the 60s and 70s. Uh, academics have constantly researched it, but again, it has to be rediscovered again and again. So you've got this idea of, of why people don't quite grasp this as, as this the normal part of Australian history. <clears throat> Another perspective that brings us back 
to a Chinese connection is the work of a, a Chinese Australian artist, uh, Joe Xiaoping, who's been working with indigenous artists such as John Bonham to create uh, art based upon this history and to hopefully use that art to certainly um, uh, get the story out as far as the uh, indigenous people of North Australia are concerned, but also hopefully allow this story to penetrate more into consciousness throughout the rest of Australia. So what does these disputes about who discovered Australia tell us? <coughs> what they tell us uh, is that people are always trying to lay a claim. Now, it was, not common, it was common not so long ago that people just simply at Greenland announced that Captain Cook discovered Australia, and that was the end of the story. Uh, right through the 50s and 60s, that was a common uh, way of, dis of describing Australian history. And this, of course, completely denied any uh, indigenous uh, discoveries or, or settlement in Australia for tens of thousands of years. And this was, of course, all about the British and British-descended people laying a claim and saying, well, we discovered Australia, therefore we own it. We deserve it. We deserve everything we get out of it. And that gradually changed in the 60s and 70s and people began to talk about the Dutch and the Portuguese and other European involvements. And you remember from the map previously, quite a large part in mapping most of, of the coasts of Australia. Uh, but that was more about Australians wanting to distance themselves from the British and become more independent. And so by widening the, the scope a little bit, they were saying we're not so dependent upon the British. So it's quite natural then that, that Australians of Chinese heritage would begin to make their own connections and claims and want to make some kind of connection, whether it's a fanciful one through Zhang He or a more linked one uh, through the, the traders looking for sea cucumber in the north. Uh, the other thing is the, uh, to say is that as far as the Macassans and the northern trade is concerned, as I mentioned before, it's still a continuing confusion as far as white uh, mainstream Australia is concerned. They still have this strong narrative that Australia was a completely isolated land. Yes, we recognise that. Indigenous people were here for 60,000 years, but they were completely isolated from the rest of the world until the Europeans arrived and reconnected it. Uh, and so they don't really know what to make of this uh, Macassan connection, but Indigenous people know what to make of it and they often use it uh, as a way of distancing themselves from the European history and to say, well, we had other connections that predate uh, that. <coughs> this brings us to uh, the First Fleet. This is a well-known connection. We're going on to the story of 11 ships that leave Britain in <coughs> 1787 and sail down using the trade routes that had been opened up by the, uh, the Dutch. Uh, the trade winds going on in the south and Dutch characteristically turned north earlier. Uh, the first fleet continued on to what's now Sydney. But what's not less well known is that three ships of the first fleet in May of 1788 set sail for China. Now the reason they did that is because they were actually ships of the East India Company that had been hired by the British um, to take convicts to Sydney. And then once they'd finished with that task, they then naturally sailed on to southern China, to Canton, where many European factories existed, to continue their trade links and then continue back on to Europe. So this is from the very beginning of the European uh, settlement in Australia. There was this connection uh, with China. And this was a, a, not a fleeting connection, it was quite a strong connection. So for example, <coughs> in uh, 1821, uh, Commissioner Big was sent out uh, by the British to investigate the colony, which had been around for about a generation by that stage. And he announced, or he complained rather, that the high level of tea drinking, which he considered a luxury, uh, was due to the existence of an intercourse with China from the foundation of the colony. And of course this is natural, the, for a colony stuck on the far side of the Australian continent, 
uh, the nearest ports are either Batavia with the Dutch in, in, in the Dutch East Indies or uh, further up. There's no Hong Kong at this time, of course, but there was the port of Canton, which had many European traders. And this is connected in various ways. The seal uh, there that I pictured is because, again, we often forget that Sydney Harbour uh, and all the coast of, of Australia was, was uh, full of uh, seal populations in the early days, and they've all long since been hunted out. But in these early days, they began to hunt them and take the seal fur and traded it with China. So this was a major trade that went on in the early years of Port Jackson. And this uh, Canton punch bowl, this punch bowl has a scene from about 1815 of Sydney Harbour. Um, that bowl was manufactured in, in Canton, um, in Guangzhou. The, uh, and again, this shows the, the link. You've got here, this bowl was of course made to be sold in the European market. It's a big punch bowl on, on display at um, the Mitchell Library in Sydney. Uh, and you can see they've taken what would, to the Europeans or the British would have been an exotic scene from the far distant colony of Sydney, placed it, uh, used Chinese to manufacture it into a, into a, a saleable market, a saleable commodity, and then shipped it off um, to, to Europe. So again, establishing this link uh, that Sydney or the colony of New South Wales had with uh, China. <coughs> but of course that soon means a connection with uh, people. Now, in recent times, uh, as recently as 2018, there was a big celebration of the 200 years of the Chinese in Australia. And this, this was marked by the arrival of Mark Tsaying in Sydney in 1818. As a well-known person, a person with a name, a name identification, a links to Australian history, he ran a pub in Parramatta, among other things, called The Lion, right here, not far away. Um, his uh, family uh, uh, continues to exist uh, in, in Australia, descendants today, uh, mostly living down in Melbourne or scattered around the Shayings. This is his uh, grandson, <coughs> John Joseph Shaying, who is wearing the uniform of the uh, New South Wales militia. So by the time he's grown up, he's obviously well integrated into Australian uh, or colonial society. Um, so this is all true, and this is all uh, very good, and it's all helped uh, people to establish their claims and links, just to identify with this Chinese person and say, well, China, Chinese have been in Australia for 200 years. It's a bit of a myth in the sense that he wasn't the first person. Uh, there were quite a number of other uh, Chinese people. As I say, uh, Sydney uh, was trading with China, so naturally there were many people arrived as seamen, as traders and so forth. And we have their names, or uh, various names, uh, reported in the newspapers, but we don't know much else about them apart from that name. Uh, so Mark Sion makes a better symbol uh, and again, uh, the, the point I want to make is that symbols and myths are good, uh, uh, but they have a purpose, and that purpose isn't always historical. Uh, historians knew about Mark Sleem for many years. I can remember looking at the papers from the Doyle family, who'd done their family history, and that had uncovered their ancestor, Mark Sleem. It's now the papers are all in the Mitchell Library. Um, but historians knew about it, but most people weren't that interested. They became interested, became a fixture in Australian history when people felt they had a some way of identifying and that of course had to wait until much larger numbers of people identifying as Chinese Australians and wanting to identify with this history. <coughs> so I'll just make some preliminary conclusions at this point um, uh, just before I continue on with the next section. So I just want to say uh, China and the Chinese have always been a part uh, of Australian history as we can see from these early trading links but also uh, history is always a matter of uh, being affected by the long arm of the present. And having a stake in Australia and laying a claim uh, is very important. 
Uh, identifying with the past to uphold the present is very important. Uh, but that means that history then has to deal with history versus myths and stereotypes versus details. So this is a constant with any kind of uh, historical view uh, of the world. And also, uh, this point I want to make, uh, that I've made with a few examples, of the resistance of popular history to academic history, which is to say this idea of forgotten histories, it's, you can't really forget a history if you've never learnt it. So by and large, the history is there, it's often buried away in academic journals or academic articles or academics know about it, uh, but they despair trying to get this out into wider popular uh, um, domains until the ABC or someone else comes up with it. And they usually do a, you know, a, a fair to middling job of, of presenting this, uh, at best, a fair to middling job of presenting uh, this history. And then it, then it can often be forgotten again the next year and then yet, until yet another journalist comes along. So this kind of thing happens until there's a reason for, for perhaps holding on to this history. So as an indigenous voice grows, so the Macassan trade becomes more important. As people identify as Chinese Australians, so Mark Soyin becomes more important uh, in history. So what I'll be doing as part of this series is I'll be suggesting some readings for people. Uh, these are just um, not definitive, of course, these are just examples. So they'll go up on the website, there's an Australian Chinese history website section. So now I'm going to talk about uh, the period leading up uh, to the gold rush period, 1851. So basically, uh, um, so this, the uh, colony in New South Wales has been established as a, a convict colony. Uh, and so here we're talking more about uh, connections with labour uh, and empire and ownership, which ownership could, of course, be put in in quotation marks as well. Um, <clears throat> is it better to have cheap goods or higher wages? That's a question I asked before. And this brings up questions of convicts versus coolies, coolies versus sojourners, and perceptions of empire. So here we'll be talking about Tasmanian carpenters and the Moy shepherds, opium and empire, uh, Peru Delta villages in Hong Kong, and again, the long arm uh, of the present. So I'm gonna begin with nine Chinese carpenters. So in 1830, uh, nine carpenters uh, are brought to Tasmania under contract uh, as carpenters, as specialist skills workers. Uh, and in the announcement of that in the Launceston Advertiser, uh, the labour issue is clearly defined. So th these carpenters are, according to the report, likely to reduce the prices of cabinet work. Mm -hmm. And however displeasing such falls in price may prove to a few, it will prove a great benefit to the many. And so again, you've got someone, presumably a fairly well-off uh, newspaper editor, is quite unconcerned with falls in prices because that's not his price that's going to fall, it's going to be the fall of other workers. Uh, and he's quite happy to have cheaper uh, furniture. Uh, and this, of course, immediately links uh, Chinese workers with this whole um, dispute, this whole question of uh, whether it's better to have cheap goods or higher, higher wages. But the interesting thing about this date, this is 1830. So this is still right in the middle of the convict period. So normally we talk about Chinese workers coming in to replace convict workers, as, as the shepherds and others, and that, of course, it does happen. But you can see, even at this period, uh, people are willing uh, uh, to bring in uh, contracted workers. So obviously on the contract means that they're, they're only going to accept a certain amount of money. We don't know what their contracts were for at this period, um, but presumably that meant that they were cheaper than local, uh, local workers. <coughs> And this is because we're talking, as I said, about a convict colony. We're talking about New South, colony of New South Wales, which at this period, early period, 1830, still included Victoria and Queensland. And in this period, the colonial elite have grown up. Mostly uh, people have been granted large swathes of land or, or squatters who are squatting on, on large bits of land, mostly trying to make their money out of sheep 
uh, are running sheep, and this is of course before wires, before fences, so the sheep are running over large tracts of land and need to be looked after by shepherds who have to follow these sheep around uh, and protect them. Now transportation of convicts ends in 1840 uh, in New South Wales, ends a little later in Tasmania and later again in West Australia. Now these convicts of course represent to the colonial elite uh, cheap labour, cheap and controllable labour. That is to say they've got no choice if they're going to go out and look after sheep in some remote area or whatever other kind of work they're set to. But as convicts disappear, <coughs> the pastoralists find it more and more difficult to hold on to their workers uh, who are then absconding in uh, increasing numbers, uh, as I say, leaving their sheep or leaving whatever jobs they're put to. So one solution to this uh, labour, what's considered to be a labour shortage, is Chinese contract labour, although also uh, importation of people from India is also tried uh, at one point. So this question uh, of labour immediately brings up the question of labour free or unfree. So from the uh, pastoralist point of view, uh, the men were refusing to bind themselves on the contract, attending the sheep in a slovenly manner and demanding exorbitant wages and more rations than they could possibly consume without waste. So this of course is a typical view of a, of a person having to pay wages. How dare you ask for more wages, you're only going to waste it anyway. <coughs> So they also felt they had a lack of power to retain their labour force and they believed this threatened their very way of life. They got used to having these large tracts of land and having other people work it for them and the idea of not being able to do that sent them into a crisis. Uh, so these landowners saw imported indentured, indentured labour as a solution, although some of them also kept agitating for a renewal of transportation at the same time. The workers on the other hand, uh, of course naturally preferred higher wages but you've got to also remember that these were mostly ex-convicts who were very associated with convict uh, history at this time. And so for them, the idea of any kind of unfree labour was, was very hostile. The idea of renewing uh, transportation or bringing in any kind of indentured labour was, was just a direct threat to them. It's kind of like bringing back these, this nightmare of the past of when they, were, uh, when they themselves were unfree. So they could feel that, uh, I think, very much psychologically. So it's not just a matter of you know, wanting high wages. Uh, that's, that's easy to understand. They felt uh, how, how, how bad uh, this system had been and they were very hostile to uh, these landowners um, uh, arguing about alternative, uh, alternative labour arrangements. But there are reasons for this. I mean, 1941, for example, it was worked out that the cost of a free labour for a year was something over £41, whereas a prisoner uh, cost £16. Uh, and a, a coolie, that is to say, an indentured worker, uh, was some £18. This is in 1841. Uh, but it wasn't until uh, 1847 that the first large numbers of uh, uh, Chinese contractor workers came in when Robert Towns proposed a solution. And he proposed bringing in people from Amoy. Uh, just as an aside, uh, this word coolie uh, it's sometimes seen to be a Chinese word, but it's likely to have been a Tamil word for labourer rather than of Chinese origin, despite the very neat entomology of coolie, meaning literally bitter strength. Uh, it's probably that was made up at a later date. Uh, and another aside is that when Robert Towns brings in uh, people, he brings them in at far less than 18 pounds per year. In fact, the people who he brought in in 1847 were only paid about five or six pounds uh, per year. <coughs> so Robert Towns, the question is then, why did he bring them in from Amoy? Or how was he able to bring them in from Amoy? Of course, the, the answer to that is in between, uh, the Opium War has occurred. Uh, and so this means that uh, a couple of things, Hong Kong gets established, 
but also uh, the Treaty of Nanjing uh, opens up treaty ports. Let's say ports where the Qing government is, is forced to allow European, and particularly British merchants to operate, and therefore they are able to make direct contact uh, with people in places such as Omoi or Xiamen being one of, the, um, one of the treaty ports. And so as a result of this beginning of this, this trade, uh, some uh, well over 3,600 Chinese laborers are brought in under contract to New South Wales, which at this point included southern Queensland, uh, between 1848 and 1853. Over 2,500 to New South Wales, the rest of Victoria, which became separate in 1851, uh, also West Australia and South Australia. And just as another aside, uh, and, uh, uh, to uh, again illustrate this point of the present influence in the past, Townsville, the town Townsville, is named after Robert Towns, and this statue uh, uh, has come under fire recently uh, on, the, on the grounds that this is a statue to a slaver. Um, not uh, for bringing in Chinese indentured workers, but for also bringing in people from the South Pacific, uh, uh, which of course is uh, associated with blackbirding and kidnapping and so forth. And so many people, again, it's perhaps inspired by American history or American events, say, well, why should we have this statue in Townsville? So again, history uh, being interpreted and reinterpreted um, and coming, coming back. So when it comes to the Amoy uh, workers, uh, are we talking about workers or are we talking about slaves? So recently, again another example of the, of the present uh, affecting the past, recently a memorial to the Amoy Chinese has been erected in southern Queensland. So quite a number of them went to the pastoralists of southern, uh, southern Queensland uh, and helped to, to maintain or establish uh, and establish the, uh, the pastoral industry in that district, some 300 or more. <coughs> and um, I, I, with this memorial, the interesting thing about it was not just a memorial to these workers, which is, which is very good, but they tended to kind of characterise it in terms of them being all worked to death. Basically, they're all dead. They all died within five years under their contracts, and, uh, and this is why we need a memorial. Now, this is a very exaggerated um, uh, interpretation of this history. Uh, we certainly know many of them were shepherds. We certainly know many people today are uh, descendants of these... Um, of these Amoy uh, workers. So obviously they didn't die or didn't die so quickly they couldn't get married and have children. We also know uh, from the history that many of them resisted their treatment. Certainly they were very badly treated while under contract. Uh, these landowners brought these people in, they were used to dealing with, with convicts and they pretty well treated these indentured workers as bad or even worse uh, than convicts had been treated. And so there, were, but there was much resistance. There were strikes, people went to jail rather than work for these people. They deserted. They particularly deserted when the gold rushes began and they had an alternative way of getting um, an income. There's also uh, various attitudes to the importation of these workers. Uh, many people opposed it, partly as being unfree labour or unfair labour, but they also opposed it on the grounds that they've been treated very badly. For instance, the ships like such as Nimrod often came with people who had died on the voyage because of the harsh conditions within the voyage, and many people were sympathetic to that and, and opposed the trade because it was such a harsh treatment of people. Um, so it, it varied a lot and not quite as the memorial to the Amoy Chinese would say. But the interesting thing about this memorial, to take another step further, is that I can understand why people erecting this memorial are interpreting this history in this harsh kind of way because they're coming from a background of the century of humiliation which is a, a way of interpreting history from from a Chinese nationalist point of view, which says that all the overseas Chinese were treated really badly. And they kind of conflate people's um, 
treatment in Peru or Cuba and other parts of the world in the same way. So this is kind of a natural part of people wanting to stake a claim and say uh, and interpret this history. And, and this is typical of local history, typical specialist history of not looking at the broader picture and it can be argued in, in a, in a, uh, from an historical point of view. For example, the memorial people would claim that they all died and nobody went back to China. Now there's no evidence of that at all. We don't have a lot of evidence of people returning. But by and large, looking at the statistics and looking at what evidence we have, there's no reason to believe that most didn't return uh, to China. Uh, and but of course, significant numbers did, did remain, and those that did continued to, um, to live in Australia and to, and to marry. <coughs> but to take it further, some people have decided, <coughs> and this is partly in, uh, uh, published, but also in private emails, people have begun to talk about this interpretation is somehow a Beijing plot. Uh, those that say that the Chinese government is purposely promoting this kind of history in order some, for some nefarious reason. Not very clear what it would be. Now I mention this because I've been mentioning this more in, in other uh, uh, later uh, chapters of the series. But just how you interpret people's motivations, I think, is part of this perception of China. It's very unusual to, for historians to suddenly claim some political motivation for people when the history is not correct. History is often not correct. It happens all the time. Historians are always arguing with local historians and, and amateur historians and family historians who don't get the history right, or they think they don't get the history right. To suddenly announce that they're all being paid by Beijing is a rather bizarre way to interpret the history. But this, again, is part of this um, continuation of the present uh, influencing the past. And uh, the Amoy Memorial is just one uh, example of that. <coughs> so before I move on, Again, uh, I just want to remember, so this is a very general overview of history, so of course uh, very often individuals aren't being mentioned and so it's important I think to remember that we're talking about people, human beings, we're talking about coolies and Amoy shepherds and uh, Magasin traders and so forth, all these are human beings uh, who have a, a life of their own. So I just want to bring out one person as an example, no particular reason why I picked on Thomas Gam, but he's just an example of a, a man who died in 1906 but he had come to Australia as a, a shepherd, as an Amoy shepherd. This is his obituary, uh, written up in the local newspaper at Gosford. He said, uh, Mr. Thomas Gam Sr. had arrived in New South Wales in 1851. He worked for the AA Company. Um, the AA Company, Australian Agricultural Company, employed many of the uh, shepherds. Uh, they ran a lot of sheep. He then, like many people, had moved on to the diggings, hanging rock diggings in this case, uh, looking for gold, whether he absconded from his contract or just finished his contract and moved on, it's not known. He then moved to Wollongong and finally to Wyong where he lived for 28 years. He worked in the timber trade and storekeeping and in this report, in this obituary, it says he leaves a large family of seven sons and five daughters, well known and respected in the district. So of course many of his descendants live uh, in Australia today. Uh, it's a general regret is expressed on all sides of his sudden death. The funeral was largely attended. So this is a very typical uh, obituary or you get of people, or, or people who lived in the district for a period of time, you see thousands of them around the newspapers. It's nothing remarkable about it. It doesn't mention at all that he's Chinese uh, or was Chinese or came from China uh, in this particular thing. Now whether that's intentional, the kind of course they consider that to be something they didn't want to mention um, or, or whatever, but it does show that he was a well integrated member of, of the community. And that doesn't prove or disprove anything about how Amoy shepherds were treated or whether people were or not uh, uh, died or worked to death or went back to China or not. It's just an example, of, one example of one person uh, uh, that we should also reflect upon when we look at the history. It's always about people, always about uh, human beings. 
So now it brings us up to the eve of the gold rushes. And here, I'm not, of course, next, it's next lecture I'll talk about the gold rushes. But I just want to talk about the interesting change that happens as a result of a gold rush. So the gold rushes begin, of course, in California in 1849, and then a couple of years later in Victoria and New South Wales, which led to uh, these gold fields being referred to as the old and new gold fields. Now the reason, <coughs> what happened was that then you get a shift. So there were plenty of Amoy men on the gold fields. They're leaving the sheep runs and they're going looking for gold. But what really happens, of course, in 1851 and soon after, is that large numbers of people come from the Pearl River Delta. Uh, and this transforms uh, the connection. <coughs> but the reason that's interesting, and I'll just hint at this today, is that almost all of them come from just a handful of counties uh, down here in, in, uh, near the Pearl River Delta, near Hong Kong. So at this point, Hong Kong has been established. And so what they have is easy access to European shipping, which allows them to easily travel across to California or down into um, uh, uh, the Australian colonies. And it's not just a change in language. It was, I mean, the Amoy people spoke Fujian-related dialects. Can, uh, people from this province spoke uh, Cantonese dialects or other languages such as Taishan. Um, but it's also a, uh, a change in maintaining links. Because the one thing remarkable about the Amoy shepherds is that whether they went back to China or not, um, they didn't continue their links. There is no evidence of anyone going back to China and then sending their son back to Australia uh, in kind of chain migration. This doesn't happen. Whereas this does happen with the Pearl River Delta arrivals. Right from this is the beginning of a continuous link between Australia and China that continues to today. There are people back and forth, going back and forth to the villages. You go to these villages in this area today and you'll meet people who have grandparents or, grand, uh, uh, or, or children in Australia. Uh, continuous connections over many generations. The Amoy people do not uh, do that, even though they were doing it down in Singapore. I mean, many Amoy people went many places around the world, in fact, in Southeast Asia. They're continually going back and forth, but they don't do that uh, to Australia. So this is a connection that makes the change that begins in 1851. So in 1851 we have, uh, according to the census of that year, 1,800 Chinese males and six females. Over half of them were working still on the indentures, or, uh, on remote runs, looking for the labour that was done by convicts. The rest were gold seekers, uh, whether they were already a Moy people had moved on or, or the first arrivals from Pearl Delta is unclear. Uh, but this means that at this point, because of this crossover point between the indentured labourers coming in and the new arrivals in the Pueblo Delta, that Chinese people are confused at this point as being all coolies and therefore all a threat to free labour. So this kind of connection is made very early on and it's because of this overlap in this period of history. And you've got to remember also, as far as New South Wales and Victoria is concerned, these are newly self-governing uh, parliaments and they're still dominated by landowners. So the, the franchise hasn't been extended just yet. Uh, and so there's a very popular fear among those who can't vote uh, that Chinese labour would be allowed to flood into the labour market and compete for the gold as well as other, other jobs. So this kind of political involvement here. Now in 1851 is the, uh, Victoria becomes independent. And so the Victorians very quickly decide they're going to determine who comes to this, this colony. So who's the first people they decide to ban? Anyone guess? Not Chinese but Tasmanians. But they, just, they, just, they introduced the law in 1853 that they want to exclude ex-convicts from Tasmania. Uh, they don't want too many of these Tasmanians. We remember that Ned Kelly's father was a convict from Tasmania, so they probably had some uh, reasonable arguments there. It was, the law was disallowed. The British government did not allow this to happen. In true British 
hypocritical style. They felt we'd pardon these people, therefore they should go to any colony. But of course the pardons were all conditional, the condition being they could not go to Britain. So Britain was quite happy for them to go anywhere among the Australian colonies, but not, uh, not to Britain. So that law was disallowed. But nevertheless, the Victorians were able to successfully pass their law in 1855, uh, not banning Chinese people completely, but imposing poll taxes and other uh, shipping uh, limitations in order to reduce the number. So you can see from a very early period, uh, the colonies want to begin to control who's coming in. Uh, up to that point, they had never, or before they had self-government, they had never been able, or never thought of controlling who was coming in, um, uh, by and large. So now we'll conclude, and again, <coughs> to emphasise that China and the Chinese have always been a part uh, of Australian history, uh, but they've not always been a part of Australian identity. So it's very early days for Australian identity, but people are beginning to identify themselves in various ways. Much of this is fought out over labour, as well as over race and empire. Uh, and we should always remember that the long arm of history uh, is, is often being um, influenced by both present and past perspectives, and these perspectives can be Australian, and they also can be China perspectives or Chinese perspectives, as people identify coming from China and influencing how people see uh, this history. And this is something that's always happened with history and historical perspectives, and there's nothing unusual about that. Um, uh, but I want to suggest that most of these themes, some of these themes that play out right throughout the 19th century and into the 20th century, uh, predate the gold rush period. So it's interesting to have that perspective. It didn't all start with gold. gold exacerbated it, gold certainly made things more exaggerated, but these themes about labour, empire, race were all there uh, and would have probably taken place in some way or other even if there had never been uh, any gold rushes. So I'll just finish there, again we've got some suggested readings uh, if you're interested uh, to follow up on some of these themes. So please join me in thanking uh, Michael for this wonderful talk.